Preston Hollow. Welcome to worship on this first Sunday of Advent. It is great to see you this morning and to welcome you to this hour of worship. We extend a special and a warm welcome to those who may be visiting among us. We are glad that you are here as well. We take time at the beginning of each service to invite you to fill out the friendship registries. You will find those tabs on the outside aisles of your pews. Please complete that to let us know that you're here, but also Note names of those who are worshiping around you so that you can greet them more personally following worship this morning. In your pew racks, you will find prayer and connect cards. Please fill those out as you are led. We consider it a privilege to pray with and for you in the coming week, and that is a way for you to let us know of your prayer concerns. A few announcements we'd like to call to your attention. Carol Fest happens this afternoon. Our annual festival of our music ministry will occur Today at 5 p.m. here in the sanctuary, it features the entirety of our music ministry, and we look forward to a meaningful time together with a simple meal following, so know that the invitation is before you. We are delighted to be welcoming Austin Seminary Professor Susie Park. She's Associate Professor of Old Testament. She will be here next week speaking on the topic of shepherds and leadership in Israel, particularly as that relates to the Advent season promises to be a meaningful time, and we look forward to having you here for that. And finally, uh, amidst all of the festivities, the lights, the carols, the parties, uh, it is not always easy for folks. For some, some folks, those things magnify difficulties, sad, sadness and sorrow, and we offer a blue Christmas service, we call it. It will be held tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock in the chapel. You are invited to come if you are in a season of sorrow in your life, or if you know someone who is, please bring them along for this meaningful time together. We look forward to a meaningful Advent together through these experiences and others. It's now my pleasure to welcome Matthew Ruffner forward to introduce our guest today. Thanks, Mark. When I was a young man, I grew up in South Carolina, and uh, South Carolina is not a big place. You can think of uh, South Carolina, the entire state of South Carolina's population is less than that of uh, the Dallas Metroplex. And so uh, when there are great preachers that come through the great state of South Carolina, the whole state knows about it. And when I was a young man, there was legend of this uh, fellow South Carolinian, this fellow Sam Lapper, who also wore bow ties, who was a great preacher over in Atlanta in the big city, and his name was Ted Wardlaw. And so I grew up hearing about this man named Ted Wardlaw, who also went to Presbyterian College, and I arrived to Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church uh, as your senior pastor, and I checked my voicemail, and there was a voicemail my first week as your senior pastor from a guy named Ted Wardlaw on my voicemail. And I knew exactly who he was. Ted uh, was that preacher from South Carolina that I had heard about as a young man. He was the guy who was at that church in Atlanta. And he was the, the, pa uh, the pastor from Atlanta who had been called to be the new president at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And uh, Ted has been the president at Austin now for 16 years, which is hard to believe for everyone who knows him and who has known him that it's been that long. He has been an incredible leader, someone who has brought vision and life to Austin Seminary. And so I am so grateful that we get to welcome Ted on this first Sunday of Advent to the pulpit. Ted has become a colleague, but also a dear, dear friend. And we're grateful that his wife Kay is here with us this morning. And uh, Ted's gonna help us kick off this Advent season in our new theme 
uh, stories, O Holy Night, stories from the manger, when you think about it, every character in the Bible, every character that shows up in important moments has a holy night encounter, an extraordinary encounter, and that's certainly true for every character at the manger. And so Ted tonight, or Ted today, is going to bring us a word about Joseph, perhaps the most overlooked character at the manger. And so, Ted, we are so grateful that you're here. Thank you for your leadership at uh, the seminary. Thank you for your gifts of scholarship and preaching this morning. Friends, this is the day that the Lord is still making. For we believe in a God who's alive and at work in the world. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us prepare our hearts and minds to worship holy God. In hope, the Israelites dreamed of a Messiah so many years ago. In hope, Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem, praying for hospitality. In hope, the wise men followed a star, believing that God would guide them along the way. Like the Israelites, we sing, Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Like Mary and Joseph, we pray for a world that acts like we belong to one another. Like the wise men, we travel through the space trusting that God draws near to us, guiding us along the way. This Sunday, we light the candle of hope. May this candle remind us that God's light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. May this light serve as an invitation to draw near to God 
For in the light of this candle, we can feel God's warmth. We can see more clearly, and together, we can hope for a better day. Let us worship God. to be our judge, and out of grace and mercy, Christ has died for us, Christ prays for us, Christ reigns in power for us. We are a new creation because of Christ. So friends, 
hear and believe the good news of the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen. by every word that comes from you. So as your word is read and proclaimed, pour out your spirit on us that we may hear your word with Advent hope. Amen. deeply grateful for that wonderful introduction, Matthew. Thank you so much for the invitation to, to be here at Preston Hollow, one of my favorite places. I'm delighted to be here on this first Sunday of Advent, and I bring you greetings from Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A friend of mine told me a story a while back while I was still a parish pastor in Atlanta about her daughter Megan. It was a few days before Christmas and Megan, who was four, was drawing a picture of the nativity scene. 
When she completed her work, she explained each character to her mother. There were shepherds and sheep, there were wise men and uh, camels, there was a stable with cows and a cat and a dog and donkeys, and of course, there was a manger. Finally, in her narration, she mentioned the central focus of the picture and, frankly, of any nativity scene, Mary and the baby. My friend noticed, though, that something was missing. What about Joseph, she asked innocently. She assumed, of course, that Megan would remember and sketch him into the picture, too. But with an exasperated tone of voice, Megan replied decisively, Who needs Joseph anyhow? Well, God only knows what Megan was thinking way back then. She's probably a professor of theology somewhere now. <laughs> but her question sums up, I think, the church's deep and centuries-long ambivalence about Joseph. I know something about this ambivalence. I've been preaching Advent sermons for close to 40 years, and this is only the second time in my ministry to preach a sermon about Joseph. I have plumbed Matthew's gospel across those years, focusing upon Mary or the angel or dreams or any number of other clever angles I've taken on this text in the past, and this is only the second time I have focused upon the one who is self-evidently the main character in this particular text, Joseph. But in rummaging around in the vast closet in which the Christian church for more than 20 centuries has stored its Christmas trappings, I found hardly a thing on Joseph. Look through the hymnals of the Presbyterian Church and try to find one hymn in which Joseph plays anything other than a bit part. <laughs> There's plenty of stuff about Mary, gentle Mary laid her child lowly in a manger, or what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, or born in the night, Mary's child born in a borrowed room, or Isaiah, twas foretold it, the rose I have in mind, with Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. Then there is the contemporary Scottish hymn writer John Bell, who has written a relatively recent hymn in which, in the British way, he refers to Joseph as the redundant groom. <laughs> redundant in the way that the Brits often describe to be fired. Everywhere you look, it's Mary this, it's Mary that, and what is Joseph? Potted plant? <laughs> now I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, okay, Wardlaw, you give birth in a snowy barn and then we'll write a hymn about you. <laughs> but seriously, what about Joseph? Joseph is the Rodney Dangerfield of the Christmas story. <laughs> of the church, either from complete slander or from utter disregard, one who doesn't get any respect because he's Joseph, little Megan. Who needs Joseph anyhow? Why are we so down on Joseph? It could be, in part at least, that we have conditioned ourselves to think of him as such a reluctant character. It seems that all of the other characters in this story have something big to do. Shepherds and wise men and choirs of angels get in to make the big entrances onto the scene. And by comparison, Joseph seems so awkward and befuddled. He's good at leading a donkey to Bethlehem, maybe, but 
Basically, he doesn't seem that essential. Maybe it's me, but in our house in Austin, where we've just finished putting up the tree and setting out the decorations, there's a crash on a sideboard in our foyer, the figures of which were painted decades ago by my wife Kay's artistic grandmother. And even there, Joseph just looks out of place. Everybody else has something important to do. Mary is tending to the baby in the manger. Shepherds are gazing with wonder. Wise men are en route toward the scene. But Joseph, he just looks out of place. He's bending stiffly down on one knee, trying hard to be sensitive. (laughs) But as I've walked back and forth past that scene this past week, I've imagined from that look on his face that he would rather be anywhere else than there. There's not a comfortable place for him in the story. He's just not an easy fit. Give him some tools and say, Joseph, go plug those leaks so the place won't be so drafty. (laughs) Give him the car keys and say, Joseph, go to the 7-Eleven and buy some diapers and some Similac. (laughs) But as things stand with us, and certainly with Megan, there's just not much for Joseph to do. We're down on Joseph. We're down on him because he appears so tepid, so benignly compromising in the way he deals with Mary's dilemma. When her pregnancy is revealed, Matthew says that he resolved to divorce her quietly. Or as it is put in the King James Version, Joseph, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Put her away, for heaven's sake. It seems so unheroic. What we want is a Joseph who will be a sort of Leonardo DiCaprio, who will thumb his nose at the social conventions and whisk Mary away to a place where they can be who they are, they are meant to be without abandon. So we don't forgive Joseph for his apparent reluctance to play his part in the story with more conviction. Which means I believe that we have hardly begun to understand this man and the way in which the whole story of Christmas and all that happens thereafter hinges upon him. Joseph and Mary, whom we encounter here in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, are betrothed but not living together. Betrothal in their setting meant a stronger thing than engagement does in ours. Engagement in our culture is often an opportunity for two adults to have a trial run before things get nailed down by marriage. But betrothal in ancient Palestine was a far more serious and intentional thing. It meant that a woman was bound to a man through formal words of consent, and it was often arranged when the woman was quite still, still quite young, 12 or 13 even. And at this point, even though she did not yet live with the man, She was already viewed by society, the woman, as the man's wife. More often than not, a good bit of time elapsed, a year at least, often many years, before the woman, betrothed to the man, moved out of her family's house and into the home and the bed of her husband. And just here, somewhere between betrothal and marriage, is where Mary and Joseph are. Not yet married, presumably, not yet sexually intimate as well. They are nonetheless bound to each other, and Mary is already all but Joseph's wife. 
Joseph, says Matthew, is a righteous man, which means that he is utterly devoted to keeping the commandments of God, the Torah. With all that is in him, he strives diligently on every day to live in harmony with the will of God and follow to the letter all of the provisions of God's law. He's sort of a, an eagle scout, scout on steroids, which is where the problems start. For when Mary is found to be pregnant and Joseph knows he's not the father, he knows from the scout handbook of religious righteousness just what he has to do. Torah says that when a woman has been unfaithful to her betrothed, he must cast her aside, perhaps even put her to death. But that's a problem for Joseph. The problem is that he's both righteous and compassionate. Because he's compassionate, he'll release Mary from the bounds of betrothal quietly. But because he's righteous, he will not ignore the law. This is where Joseph is before that holy night that gave him his new identity. On that night, there came an angel in a dream to reveal to him that what looks like a moral outrage is in fact a prophetic intervention. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, says the angel, for in the purposefulness of God, this righteous eagle scout shall be a bridge between the old and the new. As the adoptive father of Jesus, Joseph shall be a genealogical bridge, thus bequeathing to Jesus the family name of the house of David, and just as importantly as a bridge between all of the religious heritage that has been and the evolving unknown thing that God is doing in the world now, Joseph will break through the confines of the old law in order to respond obediently to God's new act in this mysterious one whose name will be Jesus. What an amazing thing that this man who has always seen righteousness as a matter of coloring inside the lines, now on that holy night, accepts the promise of that angel and takes Mary as his wife and thus becomes the prototype here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel for true righteousness and faithful discipleship. Hard as it is for us to accept, Joseph is the keystone in the bridge that is built by the Christmas story. And because he will be a link between old and new, between past and present, everything in the drama of Jesus Christ that will unfold from this moment hinges upon this one man and his righteous compassion. My good friend Tom Long, who is a lifelong teacher of preaching and a splendid preacher himself, has described Joseph this way, as a model for the Christian life. He learns that being truly righteous does not mean looking up a rule in a book and then doing the right thing. It means wrestling with the complexities of a problem, listening for the voice of God, and then doing God's thing. Being righteous, says Tom Long, is never simply being pure and good in the abstract sense, because genuine righteousness is always joining with God to do God's work in the world. And in this sense, and pay attention to me here, it may well be that Joseph is a metaphor for the church.
like Joseph, we are forever seeing the inbreaking of the Spirit, even when we can't always understand it or interpret it. And like Joseph, we spend a lot of time fretting about what happens when we don't follow the rules or what happens when divine chaos gets out of the cage and is on the loose. And like Joseph, we have to try to figure out how to follow that spirit, that divine chaos, without losing our grip on the non-negotiable things that make us who we are. Part of the struggle with Advent, after all, and part of the struggle which congregations have when so much is up for grabs when it comes to being the church, is figuring out what we have to hold on to and what we have to let go of in the wild ride toward the kingdom to come. I read a while back this wonderful book of essays by a surgeon who's now dead named Richard Seltzer. He was not just a surgeon, but also a poet. The book was a series of essays about his own craft, surgery, and one of the essays about surgery turned around a young couple. Seltzer was in the wife's hospital room one evening after her surgery earlier that day. I stand by the bed, he wrote, where she lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsied, clownish. A, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. To remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the nerve. Her young husband is in the room he stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily? The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. I think it's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. That is a picture righteousness, a picture of how God relates to us, how God has related to us from the very beginning. God is forever coming to us. Whatever about us is unfinished and tepid and is forever bending down to complete whatever is incomplete so that from generation to generation, the kiss still works. And so it is in Advent as we wait for the one who is to come and 
save us from ourselves. The one who is to come will lead us toward the whole offering of ourselves to God. The one who is to come will beckon us from our own worst errors and bad decisions and toward the people God would have us be. A people whose righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Whose righteousness, when all is said and done, approaches that of Joseph. In the name of God, Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Having heard the word read and proclaimed, we respond by affirming what we believe, so I invite you to rise in body or in spirit and to ponder together, why should we hope? We hope because God's reign is present as a ferment in the world, stirring hope in people and preparing the world to receive its ultimate judgment and redemption. With an urgency born of this hope, the church applies itself to present tasks and strives for a better world. It does not identify limited progress with the kingdom of God on earth, nor does it despair in the face of disappointment and defeat. In steadfast hope, the church looks beyond all partial achievements the final triumph of God. You may be seated. Friends, in this season, we are approaching over 600 commitments that have been made to Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church. Our goal is 750. So this is your notice that follow-up calls to those of you who have not had the chance to submit a commit card will be made after the service this afternoon. Friends, when we commit our time and treasure to the church, we affirm what we believe. We affirm that all belong to God, and we seek to live like we belong to one another. So let us give generously from that which has been given to us, that through our offerings the hope of Jesus Christ may be known both near and far. Let us give of our tithes and offerings.
let us pray. Gracious God, bless the gifts we have given as expressions of our love for you and for our neighbors, that they may bring closer to fulfillment your reign of justice, peace, and love. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. As we gather around the table today and as we think about the joys and concerns in our individual lives and our common lives together, we are reminded of those that are listed on the back of your bulletin, so I want to call those to your attention and ask that you include those in your prayers in the coming week. We also, this day, want to remember those who have been hospitalized, Elmer Adams. We also want to remember Eunice Williams, and we want to remember Sean Martin. So we keep all of these folks in our thoughts and prayers this day. As you depart the sanctuary this morning, as usual, care letters can be found on your left out of the north transept. Please include your signature as a prayer of encouragement for those who are in need at this time. Friends, it's at this table that righteousness and compassion meet. Because it is at this table that Christ is the host. This is not a Presbyterian table. It is not a table that belongs to Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church. This table belongs to Christ, the Word made flesh, so that righteousness could come to be known as compassion. And Christ is the host of this table, and so he invites us all. He sa says it this way. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, for you can find rest here. Come, I'll meet you right here. Come, all of you who have great faith, and you know all of the ways in which we practice this meal. Your seat is still here at this table, your nameplate's right on the back. Come, all of you who feel like you have too many doubts and too many questions for this table, Christ says this table is much larger than it appears. This table can accommodate every question and doubt and fear that you may have. Come, meet me here. Christ says, come, all of you who haven't been to this table in a long, long, long time. For I will meet you here, I will come to you with bread and juice. Taste and see righteousness and compassion. So come, wherever you are on this journey of life. Come, wherever you are on your journey of faith. Come, wherever you are on, journey, on this journey of faith. Christ is waiting for you. Come. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks and praise to the Lord our God. It is truly right, God of all nations, to give you thanks and praise. And as we gather around your table here at the start of Advent, we do so with thankfulness. We do so with hope. We come with expectation and anticipation that you will come alongside us and make us whole into our troubles and weaknesses, into the barren places of our souls. Come, Lord. Into the war-torn and the refugee, into those who live in conflict, 
come among us and make us whole. Into the homeless and the unemployed, into those who feel abandoned, come among us and make us whole. Into the sick and the disabled, into those battling disease or infirmity, come among us and make us whole. Into the poor and the starving, into those who are oppressed or abused, come among us and make us whole. Into the lives of loved ones, into those from whom we are estranged, come among us and make us whole into our joys and celebrations, into our work and our achievements, come among us and make us whole. O Christ, we long for your coming. Hasten that day when those who seek you in every nation will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit at table in your kingdom. Hasten the day when your kingdom will come in all its glory, and suffering and pain and sickness and oppression and death will be overcome forever. Even as we share this feast which you have prepared, come to us anew in the breaking of the bread and in the pouring of the cup, that the eyes of our hearts will be opened to the hope you promised in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn, singing. Revealing your love, Jesus taught those who would hear him. He healed those who believed in him. He received all who sought him and lifted the burden of their sin. We glorify you for your great power and love and work in Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death and made us new, new people of God by water and the Spirit. Great is the mystery of faith.
upon us and upon these, your gifts of bread and juice. That the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. By your spirit, unite us with the living Christ and with all who are baptized in his name. That we may be one in ministry in every place. As this bread is Christ's body for us, send us out to be the body of Christ in the world. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor are yours, eternal God, now and forever. And now, with the boldness of the children of God, we pray as he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be Rest, our Savior took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink all of it, do so in remembrance of me. For my dear friends, as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim Christ's saving death until he comes again. And he is coming. Christ is with us now here at table. For these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This morning we will celebrate communion by uh, passing the trays in our pews. You are invited to take a gluten-free cracker and to partake. And when the cup comes down your pew, you're invited to take it and to hold it. We will hold the cup so we can share in our common unity in Christ. Come, now the table is ready.
since this is the cup of the new covenant, drink ye all of it. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, at this table you have fed us. And in feeding us, you have given us a tangible sign of your hope. So God, we ask that you would send us out into this world to be beacons of that hope. That all may know of your love, your joy, and your peace. In your son's name we pray. Amen. is also the one who walks with us every step of the way. So be attentive to his presence with you and live the life he offers. And now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Creator, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be and abide with you and with all God's people everywhere, evermore. Amen. Amen.